From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey with the whole crew. Adi Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. We're coming to you from Zoom on a Tuesday afternoon. We've been doing it for more than nine years now. Appreciate y'all listening to us. We've got a normal show, a full show, a terrific time of year to be talking sports. We have Seth Part now in Q2 to talk basketball in the middle of the first round of the NBA playoffs. We've got Brian Burke. It is always time to talk football. And we're going to talk NFL draft. NFL draft breaking this Thursday evening. Burke's got some new work to talk about. We have other matters to discuss. For example, there's another major North American sport in their first round of playoffs, National Hockey League. And it's been a fun one so far. Very curious to get the resident Canadians take on that. And it's possible I watched a little hockey in the last few days. and It's been good fun. Gentlemen, afternoon to you. Hope all is well with you. What in particular, and I'm looking at you, Shane, has caught your eye in the world of sports? Oh, we, we definitely should talk some hockey. Some really amazing kind of storylines already in the playoffs. There was that amazing, I mean, I, I watched a lot of the Toronto-Tampa Bay game um, where uh, the, the, the Maple Leafs, not famous, famous for being come, people coming back on them, but they turned it around on Tampa Bay this time. Tampa Bay was up by three goals with 10 minutes left and Toronto scored three in the last 10 and then in overtime to win it all. So three Shane, in the series. I um I'm always pulling for the Leafs because I'm I'm fond of Kyle Dubas and I want them to do well. And now they're 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 kind of impossibly, improbably have turned into lovable losers, the Leafs, <laughs> uh, because of their long losing streak. And so between the losing streak and Kyle, I'm pulling for him. And I I, I get excited about what I was excited days ahead of time for to see this game. And by the time I got to it, it was four to one. I was like, oh hell, they're down four to one. So I pop over to the heat. And I see Jimmy Butler just completely go off. I'm not even paying attention to the hockey. And I turn back to the hockey. I see 4-4. Four, four. I'm like, oh, my God. And I caught the overtime, which was great fun with the deflection. And the least oh, score 3-1. That 10 minutes of my life, Cade, made me so happy when my kids got me a second TV that I could roll in. So I've got two screens next to each other because I guarantee you I was watching both at the same time. <laughs> two well, screens. I, I assume, I've always assumed the Bradlow home war room had like about 20 screens going well, i've got my phone and my ipad too i can have okay, four all right screens. all right all right all right all right and he's, yeah. i'm guessing multiple mobile screens so Indy's so i, I had a looking. batman cave like war room image for you anyway yeah. uh okay, yeah so, so i mean it, it, yeah, a lot of really kind of uh yeah amazing stuff happening in hockey but, i mean that's not even but, to but, talk about the kraken at 2-2 two, two with the with the avalanche which is fantastic and, and again, um, with the comeback, because they go up 2 nothing, and you think, well, this is going well. Then the Avs tie that thing up, and then yeah. Kraken come back again in overtime. Two overtime games last night. And by the way, the 4-1 to one comeback wasn't the only 4-1 to one comeback. What right. Was it 3-1 or 3 no? There was another 3 no. You're talking about the Oilers coming back on the Kings as yeah, well. The, yeah, another one of these games. That's another I, series that's been really back and forth. I texted you guys and said, I, I need to see some magic. I need to see some magic tonight from the Oilers. And then I then immediately they go down three. To, he was like, oh, well, heck. And then sure enough, in that second period, three goals. So yeah, yeah. I think we're just being treated with some ridiculous NBA and NHL games these days. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I was just going to ask Shane, Shane, how, you know, 
since I'm not a big hockey guy, although I've started watching more since we've been doing this show and everything, um, how rare is a coming back from a 4-1 deficit like you described with 10 minutes left? Like, can you, for those of us that are either basketball or NFL or no baseball a little bit more, can you, is there any way you could like, you know, I, matter of fact, one of my advisors, you guys probably know about this article, Hal Stern had a great article in the early to mid-90s that, taught, that tried to equate sports, like being this far behind in this sport with this much time left is equal to this many points behind in this sport with this left, and he fit curves to all the data so you could kind of equate them. I'm just yeah. trying to get a sense of, like, is it like uh, – I would say – I would, I would is kind it of the Patriots guess. coming back 28 to 3 in the Super Bowl? Like, what are we talking about here? I, I would say it's, it's like uh, coming back – like a baseball team coming back – like from six down in two innings or something like that. I think that would be kind of oh, the right. That doesn't seem like that's un- that uncommon because baseball runs explode. You can get, uh, I would imagine. Yeah, four- no, I just, I mean, when it happens in the playoffs, yeah. that would be a, that would be a game we'd be talking about a lot. Right. Sure, type of sure, thing. Sure. I, I do think, and uh, that's why I'm trying to calibrate this because I think three goals in 10 minutes is not so rare for a team during the kind of course of play during the regular season, but three goals specifically in the last 10 minutes of a third period of a playoff game that I think is just kind of more notable in terms of the excitement and just sort of like, you know, kind of energy and and, and sort of anxiety involved with it. I mean, I can even, I can remember specific cases like this. I mean, Toronto famously, uh, Boston came back on them by scoring at least three goals, I think, in about the same time a few years ago in the playoffs. Philadelphia's come back on Boston. So I I can point to two or three in the last couple, like at least in the last decade where this has happened, even in the playoffs. So it's not exceedingly rare, but it's certainly, I think, notable. And I I don't think it's highly probable, just like a, a, uh, you know, you would, you you could say that obviously six runs down in two innings teams come back from that a lot, but is it like one in 20? Yeah. So Shane, let me refute the following statistical story that I'm going to put to this. And you say where maybe I've got it right or I've got it wrong. So what you're basically saying is that we all know that there's game to game variation with teams. And, you know, for example, Cade uses the example all the time. Let's say on a given day, we're going to draw Toronto's strength from an urn. We're going to draw Tampa Bay's strength from an urn and, the game gets played. The problem is how much non-stationarity is there within a game? So the fact is, I won't use the momentum word, but I just used it. It's four to one Tampa Bay. If that's the strength parameter for the entire game, then actually that four to one comeback for Toronto would be even rarer. And as a matter of fact, you're like they, we've already demonstrated that Tampa Bay got the good draw and Toronto got the bad draw. And maybe that's too simplistic a story in hockey where there's multiple regimes or non-stationarity within the game. I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that's I, I think if you were to really model hockey that way, I think it would be you'd want to be sampling from that urn like every 10 minutes or something like that within a game. Like you need multiple draws from that urn within a game. I don't know if I believe, okay, but, the but, but hold on. That, now yeah, you've got go a really complicated model. What about just chance? It's like, even from very different um, strength uh, parameters, you still get noise. And so it could be that they were, you got equally strong draws last night, but then they got some really positive chance. Yeah, I, 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 I just think, you know, it's, it's not like you could sort of say, 
I, I mean, I wouldn't want to just model it as like like Poisson kind of random variation. The goals just happen to pile up in that unit time because I, I do think when you kind of get on a run like yeah. this, there's yeah. some dependent yeah. extra dependency that happens. Like yeah. you start forcing pressure. The other oh, team let's just call penalty. it momentum. Let's just call it momentum plays. for the hell of it. Well, if it's like want, it's I'm like sure. the, that that Oilers come back in in second period of the night was yeah. it was just overwhelming, and then by the third third period roll around, the Kings were back yeah. on, their, on their on their feet on their skates. Um, say given quickly, this amount of variation, by the way, it's crazy that you predict any one team to win it all. Like, uh, yeah, well, we were talking about that when the when the Panthers took a game from the Bruins, but the Bruins have since. Um, got that thing back, but let's take a. We're mostly going to hold off on talking NBA until we get part now in here for Q two. But this conversation reminds of the comeback that the Heat got last night against the Bucks, where they're down twelve with six minutes left, or whatever it was, eleven with four or five minutes left. I mean, it was a pretty big chunk. Somebody who seems crazy, but somebody said that this was as statistically improbable as the Falcons coming back against the. Uh, against the Pats in the Super Bowl. It didn't feel, I was watching it in real time. It never felt quite that crazy. I mean, you know, you, you'd realize they're running out of time, but. Is it even the biggest playoff, like, uh, comeback that you can name in basketball? Or could you name, like, 20 that were. Yeah, yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. I think that that observation was made on the betting markets. And my suspicion is that the people were really over betting the Pats to come back 28 to 3. And so that didn't have, and, and also the betting markets are not calibrated for, you know, the the difference between the bet and the profit, the VIG and what's going on. And that difference is really bad at the small probabilities. I think the models were saying well under 1% for. Well, I thought, I thought, I I thought we saw, saw something that was more like a win probability kind of chart that I assume was not a betting market. No, that was a betting market. Oh, well, yeah. Why? I mean, whatever then. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, pretty, we 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 right. we we often use betting markets as some like proxy for the probability of something happening. But I think in weird things like I mean, well, Adi, I mean, let me ask you a question. Since when we saw that last night, I forgot which one of you shared that text. I want to. I knew we were having the show today. I wanted to ask you why is predicting the tails maybe a help our audience? Why is that a much harder enterprise than predicting some measure of central tendency in the distribution? Why are you calling that the tail, Eric? Describe what you mean by the tails. I mean, some. So we're, let's all agree that Miami's chance of coming back last night, the, the the Patriots coming back up against the Falcons. This is a low probability event that happens in one tail of the distribution. So it's a small, rare event. And I'm asking Adi why, in general, since I know he's actually written papers oh, on yeah. this topic more generally, why are rare events just harder to predict? All right. So it's uh, so there's two ways to go about modeling a win probability. And one way which has gotten very popular recently is the data-driven approach, where you simply look historically at what you've seen and then make a guess as to use the data to kind of estimate almost by frequency, but borrowing strength across circumstances to make an, an estimate of the probability. And the problem with doing that at the end of the game is end of the game with big gaps almost always invariably end in one way. And 
one observation could make a, a big difference to the model. And it's just very, it's just sort of a, a rare data problem. Another alternative way of doing it, which I think is probably more powerful, is model-based, where you actually model the game. Like, this has to happen. You have to score these many points in these circumstances and these speed. But that requires having a good model for the game. And that's not that easy for a game like basketball. Um, it's much easier for a game like baseball. And it's very hard for basketball and for football to do that right. And so these things are very divergent. And we're talking about small probabilities. So remember once we've, let's harken back nine years ago when we first started, the Astros, the betting market said the Astros were about one in 500 chance to winning the World Series. The, the mathematical model said it was closer to one in 5,000. They just were so, there was no chance. In other words, the betting markets were saying something that was off by a factor of 10. When you're down to these tiny probabilities, there's a can be very big differences between what's, I think we know this. I want, I, yeah, I, I wonder what the betting market said about uh, the probability of the uh, Pirates leading the NL, National League this year. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm, I'm not sure there is. that's what they're currently doing. That, which so, they, they are currently doing. In terms of practical advice, how small the probabilities need to get before we should, because what I'm hearing from you is, you kind of just don't take them very seriously until you can be pretty sure that there's a structural model that you can lean on, which is unlikely to be the case. We just shouldn't take it very seriously when it's sufficiently extreme. Now, what's sufficiently extreme? At what point should we start dismissing these kinds of probability of winning in this rare circumstance? I would say 2% is, yeah. is the threshold. Yeah. 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 Good. Okay. Yeah. I like that. All right. Well, speaking of 2%, let's look, let's get back to hockey and let's look at Micah McCurdy, our buddy. Micah Blake McCurdy running a fantastic Twitter feed and a subscription account. If you want his deeper analysis, he's got a neat little um, sim that he's running in a a complicated visualization. Micah likes these colorful swirly visualizations, but it's a novel. Honestly, I find this one fairly readable, but yeah, I I, know I like it a lot. It's just unusual. Yeah. So he's giving stems for all the, you know, there are no hockey series that have been decided yet. So everybody's still in play, but he runs through the probabilities and, and Shane was observing. He thinks these are very different from five thirty eights and these resonate more with what the way Shane thinks. Yeah, no. So five thirty eight basically, I mean, we've, we've, I've been kind of, I guess, complaining about it, its its probabilities for a couple of weeks now because going into the playoffs and even now, they just have put so much probability on Boston. Like Boston has 42% probability to win the Stanley Cup. And I understand that they are a very good team, but that's just that's crazy. And it's the first round of the playoffs to give a team 42%. And they give, I think, Colorado 14%. And then there's no other team above like 7%. So again, it's, it's just this crazy separation of these yeah. couple teams. There's so no Shane, way that even if these are the best teams that you would have six times the probability. Well, let's stay with this for a second because Micah comes in yeah. on that exact point. And he even says he even likes Carolina more likely to come out of yeah. the East than Boston. No, I mean, he's, got, because- he's got, I mean, basically he's got Carolina. If I'm interpreting this as 23%, actually the highest t- probable, most probable team to win it all at 23%. And then well, I think Boston is next at 18%. And then the well, rest are lower a, than that. This is because they're farther along in their series. Well, they're in the same position, in their series as Boston. No, is. I think it's, yeah, I think to the extent it's that Carolina the comp- is slightly favored over Boston, 
I can only assume, again, I don't actually know what the underlying model is he's doing the sim from, but I can only assume that Carolina and Boston are of similar quality levels in the model. And that already probably makes a huge distinction between them and 538. And then I, I think it's because there's not, you know, they do the kind of seating within divisions. The next round is going to stay within division. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's basically the model. So his model seems to think that Boston's path to the finals yeah. is slightly more difficult because they have to go through the winner of Tampa, Toronto, as opposed yep. to the winner of, you know, the Rangers, uh, Jet, um, Devils, Rangers, Rangers Devils. Uh, right. Yeah, so, yeah. But I mean, regardless, I, I think, yeah, I mean, that it is interesting to me that Carolina is slightly favored over Boston, but I really like the fact that he's just, he squished those probabilities to a more reasonable level where, you know, there's still separation. Certain teams have higher probability than others, but nothing on the scale of like Boston getting 40, above 40% yeah. to win it all in so, the first round. Shane, talk about the Kraken, our Seattle Kraken, who even the series 2-2 against one of the Stanley Cup favorites, the Colorado Avalanche, he has them. Even 2-2, he still has Avs 58-42 to come out of that series. Um, you're the one who says, come on, man, this is hockey. We're seeing all kinds of things happening. You really want to go 58-42? What's your sense oh, of I'd that? be comfortable with 58-42 in a series. You know, I'd be comfortable even like some – It's, a, it's a, that's two out of three right now. Like- Hmm? It's two out of three over there. Yeah, so, right. I mean, it's basically it's even still, right? So, I mean, you're you're basically still get you're updating the per- – you're still giving you're giving me a three series, three game series. Who's going to yeah. win? And I think Colorado's yeah. the better team. Okay. And I'm willing to put that to something like 58 or something like that, or okay. even something like 60. I wouldn't go much above 60 in a series. And given that I wouldn't go much above 60 in a series, again, you know, 40% to win it all at this stage seems crazy. Okay. But yes, so, I mean, um, I, I, I honestly, I, I would, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping for the Kraken. That would be kind of an interesting mix. I mean, I like the Avalanche too, so they'd be kind of a fun team to watch. So right now, just to run down Micah's top four, he has, and this is as of you know this morning after last night's games, he has Colorado and and Vegas in the West at twenty and twenty two percent. So I should say Vegas and Colorado twenty and twenty two, and out of the East, as we said, Carolina thirty three percent coming out of there, and Boston. 28 percent. so those are the big four looking like that any any other high points for you coming out of um coming out of hockey over the last week or so well just uh worth pointing out even though I, it looks like tampa but you know obviously uh, the maple leafs have tampa bay on the roads so i just want to kind of point out an interesting stat i saw that uh vasilevsky the goaltender for tampa bay is now second all time in longest consecutive playoff game start streak for goalies so Which Martin Rodeur, who's like top five of all time, is at 86. Vasilevsky's at 84. And so Gee. assuming the, assuming this series goes six games, he'll tie that record. Well, assuming and he's, he continues to start. Assuming it goes seven games, he'd be in sole possession of that record. Okay, that's neat. Here's my statistical observation for the for the series. What what is so the the who did this? The Oilers set the single season power play percentage record offensive record this year what's that number don't say anything shane Adi and eric single season record for top scoring percentage on a power play set this year what do you think it is percentage of score uh, 25 percent i'm gonna go 15 32.4 32.4 the the five (laughs) it's a season season long that's pretty impressive the pretty 
All right, fellas, that's first quarter. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now. This is Cade Massey hosting with my longtime friend and colleague, Eric Bradlow. We probably will see the other fellows roll in here. I think Audie Weiner in particular might drop in mid-segment. Shane in and out today. We'll have him around some. You guys can jump in and we enjoy it when you do. Hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. You can also drop us email. We have a mailbag of sorts there, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We love to hear from you. Let us know what you're thinking. Q2 interview segment, Q2, Qs two and three interview segments these days. Going back to our original format, doing the interviews in the middle, we have today delightfully Seth Partnow. Seth is a longtime friend of the show. And this time of year, we're ever more interested in talking to Seth because he's about as good on basketball as there is. Seth is the director of North American Sports at Statsbomb, relatively new position, maybe last year or so at Statsbomb moves into North America. Seth Seth gets the, the job heading up their new front here, which is exciting. He writes for The Athletic. He has a book called The Midrange Theory, great look on basketball and the role of analytics in basketball. Seth has worked inside the building. He's been on an NBA team, director of basketball research for the Bucks, a team that might come up in today's conversation. Seth, always good to see you. Thanks for making time. Absolutely. Uh, it's always fun to be back. Well, um, look, it's a busy time of year for you people who pay a lot of attention to basketball. It's a busy time of year just for sports fans in general. And so far, even though it's only the first round, the games sure haven't been disappointing on both, on both fronts. With, with you, we'll talk basketball. What, what, uh, what are you thinking about as you're sitting here on a Tuesday afternoon about halfway through the first round, a little later than that through the first round of games, still probably basking in the glow of last night's games, I'm guessing. What are you thinking about today? Um, part of what I'm thinking about is I don't remember if it's the, the days do tend to run together during the playoffs. Uh, a couple days ago, maybe Friday, uh, after a particularly bad night's slate of games, I, I was opining about how the first round has been disappointing. And basically since then, uh, it has basically been uh, an, an adrenaline injection. Uh, yeah. Basically every game has been like, well, even games that weren't particularly competitive, there's been something weird that's happened, whether it's been, uh, unfortunately, uh, the officiating has come under a lot of scrutiny, uh, m- more because of, of kind of flagrant fouls, ejections, when those have and have not happened. Mm-hmm. But the games themselves have been, uh, I don't know if it's a technical term, but bonkers. The games have been bonkers. <laughs> well, let's start with the fact that um, we don't always expect those first rounds to be that competitive. I mean, this should be the least competitive round, right? And we talk about how predictable basketball playoffs are. And even though we acknowledge that, especially the West was more open than usual, we still kind of thought, well, here's the NBA playoffs. It'll be predictable, especially early. And then we're not getting that. I do want to note that we talk a fair bit about tournament design on this show. And when interesting little wrinkles come up here and there, it's fun to think, think them through. And one that's probably not appreciated enough 
But uh, one of our friends and listeners pointed it out to me. Yuval Rotenstrike pointed this out. It's obvious, but but yet we hadn't talked about it. The play-in games make that early, early action super interesting. You know, you're getting 10-9 and 8-7 and or whatever it is, 11-10, um, Those games were great. And it just, you, that you, otherwise you'd, be, you'd just be seeing eight ones and seven twos. And in general, it's an underappreciated aspect of that. And it, and it connects to places. So for example, with, with uh, NCAA football going to 12 teams, some of us bemoan the top teams getting a bye because it feels like such a big advantage. Well, an upside of a top team getting the bye, you know, take the top four teams away. That makes that first round of games more competitive. So you've got five versus 12 instead of one versus 12 or whatever it would be. So we see little wrinkles like that. And, and the NBA gave us a good demonstration of that this year. I, I think so. Although you, you were sort of dismissive of the, the one versus eight in two I know. matchups. Ex-ante. Uh, but it, it yeah. seems like, the, it, it seems, Seth. yeah, it seems like the, the, like the, the best places to start are the fact that as of right now, a seven seed and an eight seed both have three, one leads. No, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Eric, well, I actually thought we were going with Seth about the uh, seating was, um, and Seth, I'd love your thoughts about this. Um, if you were going to optimally design a tournament, why would you not reseed? I mean, we're a game away from the Sixers with, I'll call it 54 wins, about to play at the Celtics, and the Knicks are going to have home court against the Heat. I just want to say that again for our listeners. They do not reseed in basketball, which means assuming the Celtics, Knicks, and Heat, which all have three one advantages, win the Sixers at Celtics, Knicks host the Heat. Seth, from an analytics, from a fairness, from a strength of team perspective, does that bother you at all? Uh, there's a couple different questions there. One from a fairness perspective, I've always been, and this is as a player and as an analyst, win your games. I mean, I, I, you, you got into the tournaments. The teams Sixers won their games. They won more in the regular know, but, season but, than those other teams, and they're beat. Yeah. And they, and they swept. They swept the Nets. What do you so want I, them to do? <laughs> I, I but, sense, I sense a, a, a direction from coming at this from. It's not, it's, not, it's not purely rational coming yes. from Eric. But, yeah. but so I, I think that there is a. This is sort of more of a narrative thing that that we sometimes. We focus a little bit too much on well, they lost in the second round versus they lost in the conference finals. If it's if it's Sixers Celtics in the in the second round, isn't that essentially the big series anyway? And whether that happens in the second round or the third round, you know, uh, at least we're sure it happens if it's in the second round. And as fans, I think we would like to see that. And um, the fact that if Miami does close out the Bucks, we're not going to get to see either the Sixers or the Celtics against the Bucks in a playoff series when we kind of wish we had. Um, so while I, I kind of understand what you're getting at, I, I have a hard time getting too worked up over that because, you know, if you win your games, you win four and seven, you move on and yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta beat four teams and, you know, play who's in front of you. So. I, and Seth, you're, you're spinning out some other implications, which are now maybe you get an easier conference championship maybe that's nice you're not getting crushed in that last series before you go into the title match you know maybe there's some knock on no but my only here's let me just reframe it seth as well um let's we don't by the way he haven't beaten the bucks yet the bucks absolutely could still win the series but do you agree that let's imagine they reseeded in basketball given the heat 
may beat the Bucs. They could also possibly have beaten the Celtics. So now the Sixers won't be playing the Celtics. The Sixers could be playing the team that beat the Bucs, not that not that team. That's number one. Number two, um, I would think from an expectation perspective, you'd always rather have your tougher opponents go last. And let me say why. It adds uncertainty. Number one, they could get beaten. Number two, injuries. If we believe that the Celtics are ahead of the Sixers, the Sixers currently have a significant injury. Maybe the Celtics get a significant injury if they play seven or eight more games before they place the Sixers. So I would argue from a statistical perspective, I could come up with a rational argument where I'd always rather delay playing the toughest opponent. You still have to beat them at some point, but I'd rather play them later than earlier. Again, I think that that you know, luck of the draw, for lack of a better term, has it plays a role in every in every championship. I mean, injuries or the lack of injuries are always a big factor in who wins the NBA title. I will say, just hearing you talk about it, um, there is a benefit that that comes to mind, and that is uh, we talk a lot about wanting the regular season to become more important. And and in a way, some of the playoff surprises are because teams are not treating it as important. Oh, interesting. Okay. The the regular season is becoming less predictive. Well, if you want teams to treat the regular season as important, hey, let me get the highest seed. I know I'm going to play the worst seed in the second round. I yeah. regardless of who comes through, I know I'm going to get the most favorable matchup of all time. I, I, I wonder if that would, in fact, change some of the behavior in terms of how the regular season is treated by these, by the top teams, insofar as right now they're much more maximizing towards or attempting to maximize towards health come the start of April than necessarily where they're seated. We're seated first, second, third. We're fine. It's well, a nice no. wrinkle. It's yeah. a nice, it's a nice wrinkle, and especially given the criticism, the just criticism about the NBA NBA regular season. I would push Eric a little bit because he's being a bit of a homer on this. Eric, would you reseed? Here's the what's the limit of your argument? Would you reseed March Madness? No, because you enjoy the variance and the noise. And it's not all about naming the best. We want some drama. We want some theater, right? Yeah, I would argue that a one-game uh, matchup is different than a seven-game series. And so by they're inherently different by design in that way. Um, also, there's the logistical challenges of March Madness, where you send four teams to a pod in a certain zone and region. But I actually like Seth's answer from an analytical perspective. Matter of fact, here I'm going to suggest something right now to Adam Silver. All I'm saying is we'll run a randomized experiment. We'll have the Western Conference do one, the Eastern Conference do another, then we'll figure this out. We'll run it for 10 years and see what happens. So, so by the way, the NHL is not re- – I mean, the NHL is is – They do. Not not receding either. They're coming through. They're playing. They play through the divisions, so it's much more meaningful that they're going to have one advance out of each of the divisions, which is interesting. It's it's almost a throwback. Yeah, I think it's baseball yeah. and football that recede. So, I mean, I, what I'm saying is, when you look at the NHL, there's something that's kind of pleasing in a way, even though the if I'm I'm pulling for the Leafs, that means they're going to, have to go play the Bruins, which doesn't feel great, but. Um, you know, it's got this geographic relevance. It's got the rivalries and then one emerged from each of the four corners. And that it's just kind of a, it's a neat feature from an entertainment perspective. Okay. That's enough about tournament design. What about the games? These games last night were ridiculous. I mean, how often do we see, maybe it's more common. Maybe we forget over the years, but see individual performances, elevate teams at critical moments. Like we did with Butler and LeBron both last night. 
I mean, obviously you have a, a definitional problem of what it means to, you know, an individual performance to elevate the team. I think uh, LeBron certainly finished that game well. I, I think if you look at the whole game, um, I think it was a cast of, of a half dozen that really lifted the Lakers at different times in that game. Uh, you look at the other game and yeah, it was Jimmy Butler. Uh, I think he um, kind of the most important times in the game, like the heat needed to get off on a, to a good start. The Bucks were fairly obvious. This is the, the narrative how these series go. The, the Bucks were going to come out of the gate strong and they did. And Jimmy Butler scores 22 points in the first quarter just to keep the heat in contact. And then he turns around and adds another 21 in the fourth quarter, um, including just absurd shot making down the stretch to <laughs> to to salt the game away largely aided aided by by his teammates one of the the interesting factors of this series is uh, again to use a a a highly technical term the, the heat role players are shooting the piss out of the ball mm-hmm. um they're shooting i i looked at earlier i believe it's they're shooting 43 of 82 on contested three-point attempts, and I can't do that math in my head, but it's well over 50%. Well, and... 41 out of 82 would be 50%. Yeah, yeah. 43 so a, out of 82 is, it's, is it's about like, 4%, it's, 3%, 3% yeah. higher than that. Yeah, it's about 53%. Uh, league average is about 33.5%. So that's mm-hmm. just, that's a, you know, that's that's six-ish extra points a game at, at, at the rate they're, they're getting them up, uh, maybe even a little more. Uh, so that's certainly contributing to it. Um, but it's also uh, Jimmy Butler. And uh, an interesting factor about this, something I, I've, I've been noticing for like the last two years, is he's always a player who has had a couple of those games in him. Uh, you think of back to the finals when the Heat sort of unexpectedly made the finals uh, in the bubble uh, a couple of years ago. And they, they took two games off the Lakers, who were a better team, especially after the Heat suffered some injuries. But two of the games, Jimmy Butler went crazy and, and basically put them on his back and won two games. That has not been an every game thing for him until the last two years in the playoffs, where it's seemingly he's willing to every night, if I'm taking 25 shots for us to win, I'm going to do that. And I, I don't know what has changed with him that has made him more willing or able to do that. But it is a, a fairly stark you know, break between hmm. the playoffs last year and this year and his entire you know 80 80 game playoff career before that mm-hmm. Seth, i was just wondering when you evaluate players i'm wondering do you think of this like do, what role do you think i'll call it peak performance plays in evaluating players like it's impossible to say for example that jimmy butler wasn't the best player on the court last night and it's also impossible to say that there haven't been a half a dozen playoff games in Jimmy Butler's career where he's been the best player on the court. I always try to give the example of, you know, I'm a tennis guy, as all of our listeners know. I still have trouble saying Djokovic is the greatest of all time because I saw four or five matches where he was destroyed by Stan Wawrinka, destroyed by Andy Murray. And he wasn't the best player when in his prime when he was beaten soundly by those players. And so how do you think about peak performance and how when you think about evaluating the greatness of players? Because I'll never forget Jimmy Butler's performance last night, ever. I think that's a very important thing. I mean, we are in the, in the process of the regular season awards getting handed out. And it's in some ways, the discussion around those illustrates almost the difference between how much did you contribute over 82 versus when we're best on best who is more likely to come out ahead. 
those are often similar, but not always the same thing. And so for me, I do every year at the athletic, I do the player teams and uh, you can evaluate and taxonomize players any number of different ways, but I'm very explicitly, okay, I'm doing this with an eye towards winning the championship and the eye towards winning the championship means when I'm playing another good team in the first, second, third, fourth round of the playoffs, who's going to be the best player on the floor. Who's going to be able to impact those games. So I think from a standpoint, if we're focusing on that aspect of championship basketball, the ability to hit those peaks and sustain those peaks, I think, is, is, is more important than being able to be pretty good and play 80 of 82 games. Um, and again, this is, this is why, unfortunately, he's hurt again, but this is why, despite, you know, his availability being uh, limited and, you know, there's a chance basically ended, why Kawhi Leonard is still, you know, thought of in a certain level. You saw the first two games of that oh. series. Like, that's the... Kevin Durant is on the floor and Kawhi Leonard's the best player. Right. Yep. I always, I look, I always kind of just one quickly for history buffs. I'm sure you remember this. The only reason I'm not a big Doc Rivers guy in Philadelphia. The only reason Doc Rivers has one title is for one shining moment, one moment only, Paul Pierce was better than Kobe Bryant. In that one series where the Celtics played the Lakers, Kobe, uh, Paul Pierce, look at the stats, look at the analytics, look at the plus minus, look at the, look at the expected points scored from shot making. Paul Pierce was better than Kobe Bryant for one time in his life and one time in his life only. Okay, fellas, so this, this raises a couple of questions. One is, are we, to what extent are we saying, look, when you get to the playoffs, especially deep in the playoffs, the teams are relatively evenly matched and what truly decides a series is the best player. To what extent are we saying that? And then it, if so, how many guys in the league can be that best player? Like who has the capacity to be that person? How deep does it go? Is it 10? And I'll just say 10 12? seconds and then give it to Seth for two minutes. Um, you need to win four games. If I got two players that can each win me two games, I get to four. Uh, so the, the, it's interesting because there's, there's a little bit of attention here. And I'm, I'm going to answer a question you didn't ask before getting to the one you did. <laughs> There's a little bit of a tension here because um, over the course of a regular season, basketball is, is, is pretty much a strong link game. I think in playoff competition, because of the uh, detailed preparation and you can focus very much on what another team likes to do, what other players can't do, there is an element of weak link system in it. I think we're seeing that a little bit in the, uh, the Cavaliers-Knicks series, where probably on overall talent, the teams are similar, but because the Cavs can only don't have any lineups where they have five good players on the floor at once. The Knicks are finding ways to exploit that sort of consistently over the course of the series. That said, um, I think that generally speaking, starting analysis of a playoff series with best guy wins has proven to be pretty successful over the, over the, the, lifetime of I've certainly I've been watching NBA basketball um now best player wins doesn't necessarily mean that like this guy is globally the best player yeah Giannis yeah, yeah. Nakumbo was a better player than Jimmy Butler oh last sure. night Giannis Nakumbo was great Jimmy Butler was better and so when we talk about guys you're talking about the, the players the number of players who can lead that you're you're talking about you know you mentioned two guys who do two each or a guy who in any matchup can be the best player on the floor four times and the number of players who can do that at a, as a shorthand, I use it at the second round later 
in the playoffs. Because generally speaking, we get to top eight. We're talking about real teams now. Yeah. At any given time in the NBA, there's about five or six guys you're pretty sure that can do that. And another five-ish who, yeah. if things break right, they can be that guy. And and I and I would to to to, to finish the thought, I think Butler is in kind of over most of his career, as I said earlier, he's he can do that a night here, night there. So uh, just to put it in terms that we often talk about on this show and probably ought to talk about more, we're talking about intra-player variation. And what we, one way to think about this is you're getting a draw from these guys and we're asking whose right tail is sufficiently far out there that it's, it can be, it reasonably might be the strongest draw on the court of the whatever four or five guys that might be even in the running for it. Um, so your number is whatever, 10, 11, 12 guys. I think it's super interesting, Eric. Yeah, I just wanted to build on Seth's first comment that he made, which is when you look at LeBron, see, I've always said, you know, I've said this many times in the show, um, LeBron is still great, but he can't be great for 48 minutes anymore. And so you not only have the drawing from the distribution, which Cade talks about, but you also have, I'll call it the multimodal distribution that even if you get the great day, maybe one hump is great for 10 minutes. And then you get the, I'm still very good LeBron for the other 27, 28 minutes he plays. So could you talk about that in some sense about how, you know, as what Brooks said, LeBron is old, which means, you know, everyone has periods great, not great, even within a game. And to me, there's more probability on the not great hump for LeBron. But man, when it mattered, he was great. Okay, I just want to add one comment. I mean, in how would you characterize what he did do at the end of the game? I mean, it's not even LeBron, even on a good night, is not going to perform at that level that often, right? I mean, it was like everything went at the end when it had to go. He was the one that made it work. I mean, it was only at the end, but it was extraordinary in its for what it was, right? I, I think I, I think that's right, and also just from a you know uh, a, a narrative standpoint, the fact that he had. He had struggled. He had the, 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 um, for much of the game, uh, certainly down the stretch, uh, the Grizzlies were guarding him with Xavier Tillman. Xavier Tillman is a, you know, a, a good, solid, uh, analytically favorable, uh, uh, largely backup center, uh, who is basically guarding the, one of the three guys with a legit doubt of being the greatest player of all time. It's guarding him one on one for 46 minutes is doing a very credible job of it. And then last two minutes in overtime, can't stay in front of him anymore. And then LeBron takes over. Now, I think this gets back to what I said earlier about the, you know, the Heat's role players, you know, you know, uh, uh, Duncan Robinson is like 12 of 15 uncontested threes in this series. Um, They need the Heat uh, in a series where they have a talent deficit, which they do against the Bucs. They need that to be close enough for what Jimmy Butler is doing to, to matter. I think we've actually seen in game three of the, the Lakers Grizzlies series where John Morant scores 22 in the fourth quarter, but they're so far behind that that only sort of gets them back into contact. Whereas if everyone else on the Grizz and, and maybe they played a little better early in the game, they're close enough so that that kind of incandescence pushes them over the top instead of just getting them close. Or if so I've think, always said, I've always said, Seth, keep us in it and then get out of my way. <laughs> it's, I mean, there's, there's, you know, it, it, it I, don't I know need everyone saying, to keep us in it and then get out of my way. 
I mean, I think when you get to the point of, of a certain points in careers, I think that's probably, uh, I mean, we've, we've certainly seen Chris Paul do that a, a few times over the last couple of years as well. Just, um, uh, just, you know, kind of sit back for 45 minutes and then get to his office on the right elbow and make six straight jumpers and let's go home. Well, speak, speaking of that, let's talk a little bit about the Suns and um, Clippers because he, he, he looked pretty good in exactly that way on Saturday anyway. Um, and then let's talk a little bit about what the Warriors are doing or not and the Kings. So give us those two series. Give us a rundown on those two series and how you're thinking about the West right now. Uh, the biggest thing from the Suns-Clippers series, aside from the Kawhi being injured again, which is, which is sad, and I'm, I am, he's, he's already been ruled out of game five again. Um, yeah. Uh, just uh, the thing that really stands out to me is I mentioned, you know, having that, that, you know, that, that five inner circle and five more guys, Devin Booker is a guy for Phoenix who is really looking like he might be one of those guys now. Um, he's just someone who has improved steadily over his career. And then the thing he's added so far this, this season in general, and this playoffs in particular is not only is he being an all NBA level player on offense, he's being an all NBA level player on defense while also playing 45 minutes a night. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's incredibly impressive. It also helps to be in your, you know, your early mid twenties. That's something that LeBron used to do. And now that he's in his late thirties, not something we expect from him anymore. So that's my biggest takeaway from that series is, is maybe we're seeing the emergence of one of the kind of next or next, uh, generation of, of top stars. Okay. Before we leave it, given what you're saying about that, and given that this team is really just coming together at the end of the regular season and into the playoffs, what's your assessment right now of what the potential is for the Suns? So they are, they are traveling a hard road in that because of, I, I mentioned earlier about the, the, the Cavs sort of not being able to field complete lineups. Uh, the Suns have that a little bit too, but when you've got, you know, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton's pretty good. And, you know, when he's feeling right physically, Chris Paul is still very good. You can sort of, uh, you just out talent your way out of some of those sort of strategic, um, mm-hmm. like the Suns, the Suns don't really get great shots, but they have three or four of the best shot makers in the league. So it kind of doesn't matter at times, okay. but that's a hard way to live for four rounds. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. All right. Warriors Kings. What's going to happen with Warriors Kings? Uh, I mean, the, the, my, my sort of lifetime of basketball experience says that not being able to come up with uh, game four uh, is going to come back and bite the Kings and the Warriors win this in six. That's sort of that said. Uh, and then part of that is, is also De'Aaron Fox's broken finger on a shooting hand, which, um, you know, as I said, we said earlier, luck plays a huge role. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the the Warriors have been the best team in the NBA over the last decade. They've also had a lot of breaks to go their way, and that happens. That happens for every mm-hmm. kind of uh, dynasty that gets some things mm-hmm. to go their way. Um, it's been for a first go round in the playoffs. It's been very impressive for the Kings, but I think just that that you can see the Warriors' ability to just make those few extra plays a game, even though they, they almost had a spectacular meltdown yeah. in game four themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of just enough. Keep it close. Steph Curry's going to win at the, at the end. And, and they have enough guys who can do just enough 
and the but, Kings. You know, but but you're saying enough. the chance, chance has to fall your way, right? Because they yep. the Kings got the last shot. They had they had a decent shot off, and it, it didn't. It, it could have gone. Yep. They could have gone down three to one easily. Uh, yep. Eric, no, I was just going to say the same thing you said, Cade, which is you know if when I look back at this postseason right now to date, that missed shot. Um, not it wasn't by Wiggins. It was by the guy Barnes, Harrison Barnes. Yeah, who used to be on the, the on the on the uh, Warriors. That's that could go down as the most impactful missed shot in the playoffs. Because if they go down three one, I think the Kings are probably not necessarily are probably winning that series. Again, since they don't reseed in basketball, you know. Again, I think the Warriors win this series. They've got a favorable matchup next, maybe against the Lakers, and so that could be a favorable series. Good so we'll see what happens. All right. Well, it's been, it's been a lot of fun, Seth, before we let you go, give us something that you're paying attention to that others may not be, or some, some, something from your corner of the world that you think might improve our basketball watching or basketball understanding right now. Oh man. Well, the, the main thing is, uh, is, is, is join me and my podcast partner, Mo Keel on playback every night. We're watching the games and commenting along. Uh, we, hopefully, hopefully we, uh, we educate you there. Um, Man, that 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 is it. You throw me a curveball there. Um, You've got a lot to offer, Seth. Anything on your yeah. mind that's going to be helpful to the rest of us? So how are what are you thinking about lately? What lens are you looking through as you watch these games? Anything new? Um, I think that that something that that this, it, it tends to come up in the playoffs every year is for a number of years, offensive rebounding was sort of issued by teams. Uh, this is this is actually uh, Eric um, Doc Rivers was almost at the forefront of this innovation to sort of. Uh, concede the offensive rebounds and get back on defense. I think teams have started to probably with the help of some of the, the detailed study you can do using, using tracking data uh, of figuring out when you can profitably kind of take risks to go to the back offensive backboard. Uh, you know, you, how, how often you need to get extra rebounds versus how often you give up transition chances. Um, and I think a lot of these series are a lot of these games are turning on the fact that even if a team might be struggling, might have offense that that is being well defended on an initial possession, they're just getting more cracks at it because the other team can't finish the defensive possession. The Knicks mm. have like a 45% offensive rebound rate in the fourth quarter of two games in that series. And it's, you know, if you basically, if you get, you know, three possessions for every two, the other team gets yeah. right. You've got some margin for error. Seth, that's super interesting and a great thing for us to keep an eye on. You said something in there that makes me wonder whether there's a, another wrinkle that we can pay attention to. You said when. It's not just a global philosophy that says crash the boards. It's certain it's opportunistically or contingent plan. What Under what circumstances might a team pursue offensive rebounds more aggressively? Like what, What's the contingency? I mean, it's it's a combination of of kind of where the shot is coming from, how the floor is balanced and where a given player is. And the wrinkle to that is also the, you have to distill these down into sort of heuristics rules that a player yeah. on the floor can yeah. execute okay. quickly. Okay. Um, and so it's, it's sort of uh, something that that's started to happen over, over the last couple of years is, is uh, you know, if a, a shot comes, goes, goes up from one wing, you'll often see the player who's spacing the floor in the other corner instead of of simply retreating on defense uh it's called uh crashing through the crashing through the nail or crashing through the elbow they kind of kind of loop around to the elbow uh uh-huh. on that side of the floor and be ready to crash the boards instead of uh-huh. just sprinting back on defense so that's one example of that 
Just one quick, I don't know if it's yes, no question, Seth. Um, isn't it just also basic analytics at math? If I can't outshoot you, don't I have to get more shots than you? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's winning the possession game is, is what it's called. And it's not, it's not just that. It's also uh, controlling turnovers. Um, I think that, that that's sort of a – that is an aspect of the Suns, which is actually a benefit from their sort of very isolation-heavy offense is isolation offense. You have, you're not throwing the ball around a lot, so you have fewer chances to throw bad passes. So you're going to get shots, even if they might not always be the best shots. Um, and that's been a feature of Chris Paul's career for his entire career is his teams win the possession game both by taking care of the ball on offense and forcing turnovers the other way. Terrific. Okay, Seth, thanks, man. Appreciate the time. Appreciate the insight. Uh, wish you the well with the work you're doing. You can, guys can follow him on Twitter at Seth Partnow, at Seth Partnow, or the, the handle Anchorage Man up there. Mid-Range Theory is his book. You can see his writing on 538 and some other places. And he's doing a real-time call of the games. Where can they find that again, Seth? Uh, if you go to playback.tv and search for the Nerder Stream, uh, my, my podcast partner, Mo DeKeel, who is a, uh, was a video coordinator in the NBA for, for a decade, kind of looking at it through both an analytics and a X's and O's lens as these games go along. Great. Okay. Thank you, Seth. Appreciate that. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half of Wharton Moneyball, rolling into Q3. Q3, another interview segment. We've got the whole Moneyball team in here. Eric Bradlow is there, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, this is Cade Massey, coming to you from Zoom. And we're joined now by Brian Burke, longtime friend of the show, frequent guest. And uh, it's always a happy thing when you have Brian on because it means we're talking about American, almost certainly that we're talking about American football. And we're doing that in April because the draft is this week. It's finally here. People have only been talking about it since, I don't know, before the Super Bowl, probably certainly avidly since the Super Bowl wrapped. And it's here. This is Tuesday afternoon. First round will be Thursday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, I think. Brian is in the analytics group at ESPN, has been a critical member of that group for a long time after doing a bunch of pioneering work on his own outside of ESPN. But as a part of that group, gets involved with all kinds of neat little projects, and they come up with new models and new statistics, and they've come up with a new product of sorts. I barely know anything about it, Brian, but yet we're instantly intrigued and wanted to hear from you about it. And it is an NFL draft simulator. And this is a tool that anybody can jump on and play with. And it's interesting for lots of reasons, but I do want to say one thing before we get going, that if you hear simulator and think, oh, you know, it's a game or it's like this, it's, it's entertainment. It's on the website for entertainment. That, that could be true. But you should also know that simulation is one of the most important ways, one of the most important forecasting tools we have. And it's more appropriate for some environments than others. But without ever having realized it, strikes me as a very appropriate tool for the NFL draft. And so it's a little bit surprising it hasn't come up before. So I'm curious to hear, and I'm sure all the guys here, we all have opinions on simulations, are going to have lots of questions. We know nothing. I want to say, I almost used the the coarse British expression for nothing. We know that about what you've done, but we want to find out. So Brian, tell us, tell us what you're doing, bud. Yeah. Well, it's always 
so fun to talk to you guys. So thanks for having me on. The uh, yeah, so the, there are draft simulators out there. Like the, this isn't something new. That you could Google it and you'll probably come up with ten of these. I know PFF has one, uh, and they're they're quite good. They're very slick and, and cool. Um, so, but it's been been a kind of a you would think ESPN would have one of these. They're they're fun to play with, and we thought we would build our own. Uh, to kind of fill that hole, of course, but also do it in our own way. And uh, one of the differentiating things I think our simulator does is really it, it's very, very scientific. And it it's based on what we call the draft day predictor, which is um, the model that we use to d determine all the, you know, the probabilities of players being picked. And th this is a tool I built like 10 years ago for teams to know when players would still be available so they could engineer their trades to, to, to move up or move down to, to where they want to be to, to yeah. still get the players they want. And so, and then that also gives us a way of kind of grading. We're not giving you a grade. We're not giving you an A plus or an F or anything, but we're, we're, we're giving you feedback on your picks. When you pick as a, as a certain team, hey, this player was had this much probability of still being available at your next pick. You could have had yep. him there. And, and yep. that's that sort of thing. So um, so it's a lot of fun. It's been a huge success. And I'm really kind of disappointed because, <laughs> in a way, because it's really overshadowing the draft day predictor model, which was kind of my baby. And I, I, I'm irrationally <laughs> in love with this thing. And I think it's a really cool tool. Um, but users, you know, by a factor of maybe two orders of magnitude are visiting the, the draft simulator instead of the predictor model. Okay, hold on. But it's just your draft pick simulator or draft pick model dressed up, predictor model dressed up in fancier clothes, right? I mean, what, you should be proud. Well, that, that's true. I know. But um, it, what's funny is you talk, you know, in the intro, you talked about the importance of simulation and kind of what we do in analytics. Uh, and it's funny to watch some people you know, we, we we look at the tra the web traffic and some people are running, playing with the sim over and over and over. And I think what they're doing is basically trying to use the sim as like a Monte Carlo uh, tool to see how often a certain player might be available yeah. to their team or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Which is Brian, silly. Let me... You can just go back to the predictor, just get the number. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Okay. But, but, the, but the, you'll get the variation. Which is the I think one of the real benefits of simulation is is people don't understand variance and often it matters a lot and you get that from simulation. But I do want to ask the statisticians on the show just in abstract terms, fellas, what are the conditions where simulation makes sense or even like is, is wise as a forecasting tool? When is it more and less appropriate to use a sim as a forecasting tool? Well, I have to say, there isn't much alternative to a simulation. Are you going to try to model this out mathematically all the way down? I don't mean, I don't mean an abstract. Yeah, well, no, but I think well, to, to paraphrase Audi, one way in which simulation is, is, is helpful and almost necessary is when the underlying process you're looking to emulate is so complicated that it's really hard to sum, summarize yeah. it in a, 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 a mathematical model. And so you kind of have to sort of go you know, sort of unit by unit, essentially through the process. Right. I mean, it's interesting because um, uh, Ryan Brill and I are working on a paper with the with the NBA, not the NBA, the March Madness um, uh, betting sort of schema. It's a probability paper, and we can't solve actual March Madness. You you can only solve 
play March Madness. And so the version of the, the paper that solves actual March Madness is a simulation. Even though it's yeah. a probability paper and it's lots of great math, the actual actual thing that we really care about can't do at all. Right. It's just too complicated. Right. And, Perfect the, setup. Perfect but the, setup. Thing is, the thing is, is that what, what a simulation can do, what you can do sometimes with mathematics is get an expected value. And you, if you're really good, you can get a variance. If you're super smart, you can get any moment. Or, or, and they all sort of, you know, uh, fake. But a simulation will give you any probability. Um, and obviously, it's as good as the simulation and the, and the inputs and the variance that you're putting onto those parameters. So there's a, a thousand ways to do a simulation. But ultimately, you can solve any problem with enough runs on, modulo the, the ability of the simulation to capture what's really going on. And that's the hard part. And that's what we should be pressing Brian on. How okay, well, build let's that. do it. With that, <laughs> with that setup, with that setup let's, let's understand here. And, and we've got lots more questions, Brian. So tell us, like, fundamentally, how did you build this thing? What are the inputs? The, the inputs really are strictly the predictor itself. So I have to talk about what the inputs are to the predictor. Good. Inputs of the predictor are uh, grades, scout grades uh, from Scouting, which come from uh, Todd McShay's company. And then we, that's the, that's the kind of like the prior. And then the. That's, on, use, that's at play, player level. That's the player yeah. level. Is there, there must be, have something on the team as well. Yeah. So we have team needs uh, and we have mock drafts. So we use several kind of expert uh, mock drafts, not, not a collection of random ones, but ones we've curated uh, and, and have a track record. And then uh, we have, yeah, we do have the team needs. We have a special, we account for quarterbacks in a special way. Like we know uh, that, you know, the Jets right now, since they just traded for Aaron Rodgers, they're probably not going to take a quarterback with their first pick. So, well, Brian, like, let's say so. Just to, a touch, a touch more about that. There's a fundamental tension you must navigate here, and that is the the trade off between a difference in player quality and a difference in team need. How do you mm-hmm. think about? I mean, it must be explicitly in the model. You're cruising down this list of players, and you've got the scouts, and you've got some mocks saying something about how good they are relative to each other, and then you're matching them up against a team who has a chance to choose them, and they might have a better, better need at cornerback but the player that's sitting there is an edge and it's a big gap. So you're, you're trading something like that in the moment, are yeah. you not? Yeah. So the, it's based on historical trends. So the, uh, you know, a, a team's going to draft a team, a player of a position of need X percent of the time, uh, another percent of the time, the pick's going to be traded away. And so you don't know what the team arriving in that pick number is going to need. So we, you know, a certain probability that need is not even addressed. So, um, it, and it all works under the hood. The big thing that's driving everything is discrete Bayesian model. Um, so it's all based on actual historical kind of errors and variances. So, so at, at any particular, you know, the, so your model basically, your predictor model produces for a particular team picking in a slot, the probability uh, across all available players, it basically assigns probabilities to all available players. Presumably, yeah. if you're simulating this, you've kind of taken out players that have been pre-selected prior. Yeah. Um, it basically produces a probability across all, all all available players, and then you can just kind of sample one of those players proportional to those probabilities to actually sim- continue to simulate the process forward. Yes, yeah. And it's funny, you end up with, uh, when you do it, you know, and, and you're kind of rigorously scientific about it, you end up with some trade or some drafts that are just so improbable, people just refuse to accept them. 
And it's funny, it's a big hindsight thing. Like people don't understand, don't remember how unpredictable these things really are. And so the, the, the first feedback we got from the public was, this is so stupid because, you know, it had so-and-so drafting so-and-so and that would never happen. And so we're like, well, actually it would, but. Yeah. Brian, but here's it, a claim. Here's a claim. Unless you get some of that feedback, you don't have enough variance in your model. That's, that's, that's an assertion I'd make. And the same thing, Brian, same thing for simulating for March Madness. Same thing for simulating the, uh, the college football season for starts. Try simulating final final fours, the, the playoff fours, and not catching shit. If you're not catching shit from the public about your final four teams yeah. in the college playoffs and the probability that happens, how low they are, that the favorites make it, you don't have enough variance in your model. Eric? Yeah, I was going to ask you, Brian, if you could wave a magic wand, which of the two parts of the simulation would you improve? Would you improve the strength parameters, like the ratings of te- of the players? Or would you improve, let's call it the decision-making model, which says now that you've got the strength, how is a team going to select? Where do you think the greatest source of variation is? Uh, I, th- I think I would improve the, the, like, the, the, the part of the model that incorporates the, the mock draft predictions. Uh, and it struggles when there's like a wide disparity. So one mock might have a player taken in the top five, another might have them. And 25 and the model struggles to work well because the, you know, the, the likelihoods in the, in the Bayesian equation are so uh, there's very little overlap. Um, so when there's wide disagreement, um, the model s- struggles. Uh, so I'll, that's the thing I would fix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both the other guys want to jump in here. Uh, uh, yeah, two, two questions. The first one is really just an observation that the public has no idea what the outcome of the simulation really means. And so they don't understand that weird shit will happen. And that doesn't mean it's probable. It just means that it's possible. Uh, but my question is, really has to do with what's driving the reality of the random. I mean, if you think about it, what, when we see a, a, uh, an actual draft take place, and it's not as we expected, what's the cause? Is it is it the teams reevaluating the player, the player? Is it the randomness in the order? Is it someone making a weird pick and then throwing everything out of whack? Or is it really actually just quite predictable? We just don't have the data. We just, to us, it looks random. Um, what, what actually is under there that drives everything? Well, I, I think you have like, you know, 32 different decision makers. Yeah. And you're trying to estimate, you know, human behavior is, is the most impossible thing to predict. And so, I mean, I think that's the bottom line. That's the source of kind of all the craziness. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, and I think there's this natural human nature, you know, to the hindsight bias where the people assume that, you know, oh, everybody knew that Mac Jones was going to fall out of the top five when you go back and you look at these actual mock drafts from a few years ago and look at where everyone agreed there's no way Mac Jones slides past San Francisco, and he's just Shanahan's prototype and all that. So um, we forget how surprising that that stuff is. Um, before I forget, I just want to credit Chris Harden, who is a developer who, who made the front end and did a lot of the, the actual coding that, that picks players and, and uses the distribution. So I can't uh, I can't go without giving him uh, his due. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I assume when you're doing this simulation, you've got, again, like a pro- for every team, a probability distribution over all players. And then as team players get picked, obviously, you just kind of 
take, you know, remove their part of that team's, you know, that remove them as a choice and renormalize the probabilities for every team. Yes. You don't, I assume, build in extra stuff like the human decision-making part of things where, oh my goodness, there's a run on quarterbacks. <laughs> does this make us more likely? Like, like does how, like how, what, how teams have picked immediately previously to your, the current team, does that somehow get factored in or no? I don't know. I have some thoughts on that. I, that would be, I think, almost impossible to model. Yeah, right. I question whether that even exists. Um, a lot like, you know, another kind of human bias is like they don't they don't appreciate like streaks or like randomness is much streakier. So when yeah. we see like a whole bunch of players come off the board at the same position, then, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a run sort of like a market panic. It might just be kind of random luck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Brian, I wanted to build on something Shane just said, and something Shane said would violate every single principle that we believe in marketing modeling. And let me just explain what that means. Let's imagine we have three options, three players. Let's call them one, two, and three, okay? And I have some probability of selecting one, two, and three. Two gets pulled off the board, and now I just renormalize those probabilities one and three. We would never, ever build a model like that in marketing. For example, to imagine one is Coke, two is Diet Coke, and three is Pepsi. Someone's Pepsi's off the board or Diet Coke's off the board. Now it's the relative strength. Well, there are Coke buyers and there are Pepsi buyers. And this is called the IIA property of, of choice models, which you never build a model that says that probability. How, how would a marketer simulate that though? You do. Uh, well, just quick. You'd have a nested logit model. You might have a draft by position. You might have position level variables and other things in the model. So I'm just interested, yeah. Brian. Do people think about that at all when people are off the board and how to reapportion the probabilities? Well, if I understand the question correctly, I mean, I think we remember you have 32 different decision makers in, in sequence. I, I think what you're describing is like a single consumer who's made one choice and then, then has another secondary choice to make, right? Um, so in, in that regard, uh, we do. So we update the team needs dynamically as so this all runs live during the real draft. And what we do is we we update the team needs as we dynamically as, as players come off the board. So if you t- if you take a wide receiver in the first round, wide receiver is no longer a team need uh, for that for that team. So we do do that. Uh, but I think the problem is a little different because you have you have a sequence of different decision makers um, and their preferences. Now, I was just just quickly. I was just referring to. Let's imagine there's another team that needs a wide receiver and one's off the board. Now, of course, their propensity to select a wide receiver may go up. That's what I'm referring. Well, yeah, to. that was what I was kind of talking about with my. Is there going to be a run? You know, do you build in kind of this extra possibility, like extra tendency towards runs at a particular position? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with I, I'm with Brian that I'm not sure that actually exists, but it would be hard to build it in if it does. But it's not, but maybe not, and maybe it's not so crazy if they're if they're if they need a receiver and there are three on the boards and all of a sudden two go away, the chance that they go ahead and take one then increases, right? It yeah. Just, by, but yeah, I, kind of, I guess it's whether or not posi- position, you know, like for the the at a particular time that team's probabilities across players. You already said obviously they've got a bunch of measures of the quality of the pay- player. They've got measures of their own. They've got some kind of measure of their own need in that position. I don't know if there is there anything in the model kind of for what the relative availability at that position is or not no, beyond every- just those players being the some a bunch of players being removed. Uh, not explicitly. Uh, I, I understand what you're saying. I think it's a really interesting question. And um, so there's like a conditional, 
you know, sort of aspect to, to exactly. Um, and so that might uh, generate streak. That might be a way of building in kind of streaks mm-hmm. if you thought they existed. The yeah, model so needs to be paying attention to itself. The model needs to be feeding its own probability. Yeah, I mean, Shane, just give me 10 seconds. That's why we see brand loyalty in marketing. You know, a product gets added or one gets removed and someone says, I'm still a Coke drinker. I can't drink Diet Coke anymore. Uh, that's you, that's exactly the kind of streaks that and runs. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's, so that's really what, what we know, just to, to, to kind of give context for this conversation, we know that these mocks and these sims have gotten really good, meaning, meaning two things. One, they do a pretty good job of predicting what's going to happen. And then perhaps more importantly, they kind of reflect market prices that teams are tough. It's tough for teams to beat. And so one of the observations that's bouncing around the Twitterverse these days is that players who are taken far above their expectations earlier than their forecast to be taken rarely outperform the original forecast, even though they're drafted, you know, as if they're going to outperform Mm. that really tough to beat the market forecast. So there's these models and this wisdom and this approach has become better and better. And now it's almost a market And, and it comes back to, okay, now that it's that good, the teams really can use it to affect their strategy. So they, they should presumably practically adjust when they take a player, even if they like them a lot, they don't have to spend the capital if they can get down to a place where he's still going to be available. um, But the market doesn't value him as much. Do I have that right, Brian? Yeah. Well, there's this kind of classic uh, case uh, a couple of years ago, the Raiders drafted a player named Alex Leatherwood, who is kind of, Oh my gosh. People knew immediately that was a bad pick, right? And and the reason that this draft predictor thing got like so much press was uh, our live broadcast. Our researchers were able to use the model and say that there's this very high probability that Leatherwood would have been available at the Raiders' second round pick. So yeah. the Raiders could have had someone else who was even probably projected to be even better than Leatherwood, and still get him in the second round. And that just blew up. Uh, right. It was like, how do you know that? How can you tell that? And, <laughs> and it was it was a great use case where it just you know just put a spotlight on what the what this model can can kind of do for you. And so that was that example. And then Leatherwood, you know, went on to have you know some struggles. He he was moved to guard and so on. So I'm not saying he's a bad player, but it was it was a great uh, kind of case study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, how, to what extent do you kind of feel like teams, like each team's got a team of, got analysts that are doing presumably their version of a mock draft right now. That's got to be a huge part of their draft night, stra- draft night's strategy to, 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 you know, as to the rest of your knowledge, are they kind of doing something as, I, I mean, are the in-house kind of mocks as sophisticated with what you guys are putting together I mean, you'd, you'd expect they wouldn't want to just take yours. They probably have their own kind of team, team-generated quality scores for everybody, as well as, you know, you may not have the best estimate of their needs compared to them. But, like, how, how, many, of, how many organizations do you think are using basically kind of a customized version of what you're doing versus something way more kind of naive, simplistic um, out there? Uh, I, I know of one 
uh, team with like a very big analytic staff has the resources to do their own development that, that definitely has their own version. And when I was consulting for teams before I was working for ESPN, I would I'd say, hey, here's this tool you can use. And they say, well, you give us all the code so that we can put in our own inputs because we know some things that are going to happen and not going to happen. Um, so, and I say, hey, just tell me and I'll just put it in. And, you know, a special version for you. And they're like, no way, get out of here. We're not giving you any, you know, th this is not leaving the building. Uh, so and yeah, I can imagine it's like, oh, well, it turns out we don't have the need of receiver that you think we do. And you're like, oh, I wonder what that is. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I could see why. And I've talked to a few teams recently and they want to build their own version, but it, it like it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of work. And the, the, the people that are working for teams are they don't have the kind of the luxury of time and autonomy and things to do the kind of stuff I do. Um, I, I got an email from a team this morning it was asking for all the hard case. Hey, we can see the graphs online, but we want the hard numbers for, you know, all thousand possible players. So I know they're very interested in it. Um, I really want to see like, you know, those live shots on uh, in the, in the war rooms on draft on draft night. I want to see, um, I, I want to see my website on <laughs> Greedy, you're greedy, Brian. You're greedy. I hate to, if it makes you feel any better. I had that Leatherwood observation in my head. I mean, it's just, it's, it's in my consciousness from that draft a few years ago, and I didn't even have it connected to your model. So that's how influential you are. You're changing the conversation. You're changing the way people think. And, but it's so influential that people have lost attribution. Okay. I have a uh, question. Well, of, well, hold on. I'm talking to the co-author of, the paper that changed, just absolutely changed the NFL draft forever. So I, Kate is so humble. He, he doesn't mention that he is the co-author of uh, what is simply known as the long time ago, L long time ago, Brian, I have a question. I have a question for you guys. This is a serious question. No one, no one blurred out an answer. Think about it for a moment. This comes from, I think maybe yesterday, Tej and Parker took over Sumer sports um, podcast and they did a draft conversation and they did a mock for six, they picked 16 picks out of the first half of the top top. So this is uh, um, a couple of younger guys that Sumer's brought in, but both great analysts, both great follows on Twitter. And they read a question from the audience at the end that I thought was interesting. They said, the question was, if, if, if the NFL reran the draft a second time, how different would it be from the first time? So take a knee-jerk reaction, but then think about it for a moment. I want to hear your reactions to that. And obviously, it's relevant. We're talking to a guy who just helped build a sim for this thing, which is all about variation in the draft. So everybody should have, that's all I could talk and tell my students. Everybody should have an answer. Let's hear, let's hear your answer. I have a very clear answer, but I modified it some as I thought about it a bit more. Shane. I just want to clarify the situation. Are we rerunning the draft immediately after the previous draft? Or we're, is it like a day a, later after all the GMs no, get flack? No, no. Okay. We're going to snap a new universe. The universe reruns again fresh. Okay, so it is just the inherent variability in the draft as opposed to some kind of, you know, process like the did, extra did they, information. In the second universe, did they get to see the, the outcome from the first universe? They do not. They no. do not. So, so it's just uh, the second... Uh, I thought about this a lot. I, so there's lots of ways, as you know, Kate, you could measure this. You could compute the correlation of the ranks, right? So where do people get drafted? You could compute but, how many are in I, the first I, round I, each time. What uh, a simpler oh, question. How different will it be? Just in I'm giving you measures of difference. Why, why, why would they be different? This is what I want to talk about. I mean, the first person is going to make the same pick. Unless substantially. Coins. 
Why would they be tossing coins? Okay, so I, this is exactly my reaction. I, I, I think enough war rooms are tossing coins. This is the maybe question. not right at the early level, but are tossing coins, and then you know the second a coin get uh, there's a coin toss, then all of a sudden all the downstream okay, this is, stuff. That's that's as soon as one. Obviously, as soon as one is different, everything else is different. So the question is, why would one ever be different? Adi has the right starting point, in my opinion, and that is. There's no aleatory uncertainty here. It's all epistemic. Brian's entire sim is based on the, the unknown is what the front office is going to do. We don't know their actual preferences. And in some sense was my question earlier. Right? Yeah, no, this is you asked the right question. But but now I want to push it just a bit. So I think as a starting place, it's kind of ironic that we think the sim is so great because I do think it's great in a world where there's no aleatory uncertainty, because usually the sims are capturing all this stuff that we'll never pin down. It's just it, chance. It, it, out there. The question there is, is inherent randomness to it though, in my it, opinion. It's like, well, that's what I want to talk about. How much and where is that? Because that's weird if it is, but Brian, please. Well, it's like that like epistemic question in statistics about like, what is probability? You know, is it a, is it a rate? Is it a frequency or is it a degree of belief? Right. so it's kind of like, the, it's, I think it boils down to something like that. But I, my personal answer would be I don't I don't I don't think GMs are flipping coins kind of like they can't decide between one or another. I think if if that is if that process is actually occurring, it's it's occurring well before you know the draft night. They have a plan in place. Okay, um, but okay, Shane's 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 got a strong opinion. So saying we're saying we're saying first round. We're talking about the yeah. first round. Why? Where's the chance in this? Where's the chance in the in the front? Well, the chance to say Jerry Jones just certainly is watching the draft and suddenly like says, I I, I want a wide receiver. I've seen a bunch. No, no, no. That's no, not that's, built into but the, that's good. He's gonna see the same pick. No, he's got to no see the, All right, so hold on. Let me let me make it the first pick will come out the same. Or well, Jim Ursay. Why would it not? Of his decision Why would it not come out first? This, this is the question. This is the question. Are the general managers in this situation and and all the people surrounding them, are they that reliable are they perfectly reliable is the question I mean, you know, i'm not talking about we know process. the we know the boards aren't reliable but i mean once the boards are set and picks are coming in the way they conduct themselves in that 10 minute window because the only reason that would be different is if somebody's not perfectly reliable and that's not in brian's mind how that's are humans how are humans in general on rush decision making not perfectly reliable perfectly reliable well yeah, I so I just wanted to build on what Shane says because I, I agree with his point. It would be the following. So let's imagine um if the if teams built deterministic boards beforehand, and of course a hundred percent committed to do whatever their set of decision rules are, then it would come out the same. However, in a story. short period that, of time, people are yeah, that's the story. But in short that's possible. Another possibility is there are some teams where in a short moment in time, they're going to make an observed decision, which is centered around the truth, their belief, plus some random error. It might be a small amount, but it will lead to stochasticity. I find it hard to believe that every team has a perfectly deterministic board that no matter what happens before them. Matter of fact, let's go back to the discussion we just had with Brian. I thought this other team was going to take a wide receiver. Oh, wait a second. My top wide receiver is now on the board. So now I'm thinking to myself, wait a second here. I was certain I was going to take this player, but I never thought this person would be on the board. Maybe that's intransitive in some way, but you know what? 
it ha- it happens. It's for sure happens. I, I think it's remarkable possibility. I, I, I think it's unlikely that 32 offices, 32 board war rooms are going to be perfectly reliable. I do think it's unlikely. So I'm going to say there's going to be some variation, but but I think it's kind of astounding that there is in this circumstance. This is the most important personnel decision they make in a year. A year goes into it. Untold man and woman hours go into it. And they're not going to be reliable if in a 10-minute window. It's pretty remarkable. Brian? Uh, yeah, I would agree that you, you can't absolutely say they're going to be 100. Every GM, every decision maker will be 100% consistent and reliable. And so given that there's this even just tiny chance that they're not, and they're kind of willy-nilly about it, then the whole house of cards falls and yeah. everything else from that moment on is, is different. Um, but And it could be, it, I, I mean, I, I kind of guess if, if I was sort of trying to imagine kind of what the space of all these drafts would be probably in the early, like the first round, there's a lot more kind of certainty or certainty to the team strategy because there's not such much so much variation in available player and, and stuff like that in the later rounds or, or or let me put this another way i think in the later rounds it's even more easy to see there's probably actually some kind of coin flips or dartboard kind of decisions involved where they're like well you know we really are equally probable or equally confident yep. in these two cornerbacks yep. so that I, I think there's going to be definitely that inherent randomness in the later rounds in the earlier yeah. rounds maybe it's much more deterministic I, don't yeah, know. I would agree with that brian we need to let you go but give us something that you're most interested in as we roll into thursday night what are you most curious to see or a couple of things you're most curious to follow as the night unfolds uh, i'm going to be crossing my fingers on some like prop bets that so we can extract uh, probabilities of um, the number of SEC players taken in the first round, the number of wide receivers. We can extract just about any question um, out of it, and I hope I hope we get those right. Well, so, for example, your buddy Seth Walder and a frequent guest on our show has a real nice piece up on ESPN right now, working with your SEM to answer some of those prop bet questions. For example, what's the, what's the most likely pick at which I'll – top four quarterbacks are off the board. So that's a, yep. that's like an obvious fun one to work through. And I think the answer ends up being, I don't know, what was it like in the low teens or something? You know, what's interesting is like people are really, really bad at compound. People are bad at probabilities in general, but people are really bad at compound probabilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know who uh, Vegas odds makers are? They're people. <laughs> and so uh, I think when you have compound, like a, a a bet to make that involves compound probabilities. If you if you do your homework and you have and you have quantitative estimates, uh, you can very often beat uh, human odds. Okay, so that mathy mathy mouthful that Brian just gave us the, the concrete example with quarterbacks is what Brian? Give us give it work it work walk us through it. It's that each of these guys' expected number is in the top ten, but the chance that one of them lasts until the second ten is quite high because of compound probabilities. Yeah, so people, people just—it's what's the chance this happens and this happens and this not this doesn't happen, but this does happen. Uh, you know, chances like things like that are very difficult to, to sort of wrap your head around intuitively, and and your only chance is to kind of do some kind of quantitative es- estimate. So uh, once you once you run the simulation, um, 
you know, enough times and you have enough iterations, you can extract any sort of common, you know, what's the chance that you can answer any question, any question at all. So yeah, questions like when there's these top tier, top four offensive tackles, what's the pick, you know, what's, what's, you know, what's the chance one of the four is available at 10 at 11 yep. and so I was just going to add one thing to build on your question before, Kate, about when would you want a simulator? The nice thing is a simulator can answer all those questions. You don't have to build separate models for each phenomenon. You build one simulator, you get a bunch of probabilities and outcomes, and you want to know how many SEC players are in this, are the first 13, you want to know this, you want to know that, you get it all. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, listen, Brian, thanks, man. Thanks for sharing with us this afternoon. Appreciate the work you're doing as well. And have fun. We'll we'll pull for you. You're pulling for your prop best to go through. We're pulling for your screen to show up on TV in one yes. of these workrooms. We need the screen. I, I'm just going to ask some one of the people I know and on the teams to do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> Get it up there. Okay, man. Have a have a good time Thursday night, Friday, Saturday for the whole thing. Appreciate it, Brian Burke. Thanks. All right, guys. That has been three quarters here at Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. After the break, you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth and final quarter of this week's Wharton Moneyball. We do two hours here on SiriusXM every week, two hours of sports analytics. This is one of our open topics segments. We start and close with them typically. Quick little Q4 here to wrap up the show. Just off the phone with Brian Burke, just off the Zoom conference line with Brian Burke talking NFL draft. We mostly talked simulation methodology for the great entertainment of we five people at the very least. Um, It's general. We use Sims in other places. It comes up. We need to know how these things work. Um, But any other observations about the draft, fellas? I got one thing I want to add. And it's and I, I think it's one of the only things I feel strongly about is is actionable. You you know you, we've been saying trade down for a while, um, but a new emerging piece of advice that I've come to really believe is clear to me now. Thanks to Kevin Cole, our friend Kevin Cole was on the show recently. He's doing a lot of work at Unexpected Points Added, and he shot this analysis a few weeks ago that's position level um, draft value. And in some ways, it replicates the work that Thaler and I did years ago. It's got this funny curve where the the value of the pick goes up at the top of the first round instead of down, and that's because those guys are so expensive that it doesn't it doesn't it it's, it it pays to take to take a little bit less performance value because they're so much less expensive. Um, but they run that by position, and Kevin gets these stark differences across positions, and and and. It's really neat to see. And now Ben Ben Baldwin was inspired by Kevin. And the exact same thing. Bill Barnwell wrote an article about Bajan Robinson. Should you draft a running back? Clear RB1 this draft, but where should he go given the position value of running backs? And we've talked about this for years. We ran numbers back in the day that showed the only way to not make money in the draft in expectation was to take a running back at the top of the draft. That was true in the early 2000s. Like the only position, only place in the draft because rookies' wages are so suppressed. Anyway, even despite all that, when I saw Kevin's curves, it's so stark, these differences across positions. It's just so clear to me. It's only in the top of the draft that this is the case. First round, by the end of the second round, the big position differences are kind of squelched out. But in that first round, it's so striking that 
it's clear that teams should just do that thing. It's like you'll never make up in your ability to pick one player over another. That ability to discriminate between players is so hard and so marginal. You'll never make up what you could by simply picking a guy from the right category. Very interesting, of course, if I'm assuming I'm looking at the same chart you are, that tight end and safety are down there too near the bottom. And so, you know, I'm not surprised by safety. I guess maybe tight end at some level, although as you know, we've discussed a number of times on the show, what defines exactly a tight end nowadays is, is unclear. You know, was Gronk exactly a tight end? He was certainly a very great blocker. He could also catch lots of balls, you know, but either way it, those would be, I'm not, those would have been the three positions I would have guessed you get the least value from as well. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, I don't know, tight end seems to me specifically, and I I guess I don't really have Dave, you know, a quantitative analysis to back this up. Seems to be a position where the kind of that elite kind of, it's very rare. I think it's like most tight ends are, are kind of like, are, are mostly, you know, kind of there to block and occasionally be a pass catching threat. But the kind of, you know, what Gronkowski or Tony Gonzalez or some of these kind of, you know, where George Kittle are doing, where they both block and essentially catch like a wide receiver. I think that kind of eliteness, you would you would draft that early if that was at all predictable and predictable. I mean, I think there's entire graph, there's entire drafts that could go by where that doesn't exist at the tight end position, I think. That's right. That's exactly right. It's so it's it's rare and really hard to predict. In fact, um, again, Kevin's done some work more recently on trying to do that, predict tight ends, which is interesting. But let's just be clear. Kevin ends up putting them into tiers, like top tier yeah. positions, low tiers and average tiers. And then and he breaks them out. But then Ben also comes in behind him and breaks them out in detail. And to, one of the things that that has emerged and I wouldn't have known is that the interior defensive line. So nose tackles and 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 tackles, nose guards and three techs, those guys are much more valued than they used to be. They've risen up into the same category as offensive tackles and the edge rushers. So that top tier is edge, offensive tackle, and interior defensive line. Super interesting. And the But the factors are, we're talking about two, two and a half, three times more valuable in expectation. In expectation. And, and is, is it, I mean, I, what's confounded here together to me is, yeah, I mean, because we're just looking kind of sort of picking strategy, whatever, like how much is, of that is that these are, you know, that interior defensive line are more important positions than we thought they used to be, or that just they're more predictable positions than, or yeah. they're, they're very predictable. So you've got a much greater chance if you are picking in the first round of having an amazing elite player. I don't know. It's, it's, we, we, we should be able to decompose that because the, the value side of that is known precisely. It's they're they're literally just asking what would the what would this level of performance cost on the free agent market? And those guys ah, are just so much more expensive. But mm-hmm. once you've factored that because you would decompose it into these two parts, once you've decom- once you factored that out, what you're left with are those guys more predictable. And I'm going to guess most of the difference comes from that first piece. It's just mm-hmm. that that's more expensive. And Bill Barnwell had this wonderful analogy when he wrote about the when he wrote about Bajan, he, he writes favorably about Robinson. Of course, everyone does. But he's like, but it's a running back. He's like, if you went into bed, here's this analogy. If you go into Best Buy and they give you a coupon when you walk through the door that says you can have anything in the store free. Now, there's a caveat. It's only a 65 percent chance it's going to work when you get home. But you can walk out of here with one item, any item you want for free. What are you going to get? 
And Bill's like, you're, you're not going like, to, you might need a toaster and you could get a toaster and you get a perfectly fine toaster, but maybe that's not what you should do with the buy one for free mm-hmm. item at Best Buy. Maybe you should go get the big screen TV. That's it's, it captures it perfectly because if you're going to have to buy a TV somewhere, you get it at the place where it's cheap you know, you get the toaster somewhere else. It's like pay full market for the cheaper items. This is a discount market. The free, the, 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 the salaries are suppressed. It's a discount market. You want to get the most expensive thing you can when you're in that market. Let me ask you a question. Let's take away uncertainty just for a second. Suppose I told you that B. John Robinson was going to be as great in his first five seasons as Derrick Henry. Would you draft him? Um, almost certainly not. Uh, well, what I would draft him, it all depends on the where, Eric. Would you draft him in the middle of the first round? Almost certainly not. Um, just the Even value- if he was as great as Derrick Henry, if I told you with certainty. I mean, I'm not sophisticated enough to know what value to put on Derrick Henry's performance, but I'm skeptical. Um, the certain, if you can tell me certainty, then probably so, because I think the certainty does a lot of work here. And what that's what we, I'm asking. That's what I'm asking. What we, what we feel is certain in the draft is always less certain than it feels. No, no, Even I, I, it's a totally ridiculous hypothetical. I was just asking yeah. if I was to tell you that this person okay. was in the top one percent of all running backs who's ever My, played the game and averaged over yeah. five yards a carry, like him and Jim Brown are the only two in the history of the NFL. Would you draft him? And the yes. answer is you might at that yeah, level I, of Edens. With that, with that kind of, with that kind of. Certainty, I think the answer is probably yes, because you would take certain value. I mean, even these other picks, even though they're more valuable, if they do pay off, they are so much less likely to pay off just because there's so much uncertainty with the draft. It doesn't feel on draft day like these guys that are taken in the first 10 are uncertain prospects. It feels certain, and they're just not. This is what we never, this is a lesson we never learned. That it's always less certain than it feels on that. I'm level. not certain about just quickly to wrap on. I don't know if to wrap up on this. I'm not certain about any of the quarterbacks in this draft oh, right now. I, wow. I can I can come up with an easy argument that all of the quarterbacks in this year's draft, whether it's the injured Hendon Hooker, whether it's the too small uh, Bryce Young, whether it's you know C.J. Stroud, you know he's good, but maybe he's not going to be great. Anthony, it's Robinson, you know, who's got Richardson, Richardson, sorry, he's got unmeasurables. He's got these amazing measurables, but who knows if he's going to be good. Um, Whoever the fifth quarterback is, the other guy. The uh, the only thing I'm certain about is Will Will Levis. I don't know. I'm certainly happy that my team is not picking a first round quarterback this year. Because it's, yeah, just, it's I don't it's too too much uncertainty. And, but if you're that uncertain, I mean, pretty pretty clear that if you're that uncertain, you might as well, if you can, trade back, take the guy that comes to you yes. and a bunch of other players. But of the, the, no one wants to do that because you fall in love with a player. That's the entire life these guys live is to be able to discriminate between players. And then you're just going to say, "Hey, I'll take whichever one lands third or fourth." It's hard. It's a hard thing for them to do. Hey, one other NFL thing before we catch a little bit of baseball. Adi, you've got a new quarterback, man. What do you think? I'm I'm actually delighted, although I was getting shit from some people about how much they gave up for it. Um, I didn't know how much they gave up for it. It didn't look like that much. It's, and it's it not seems that like, much. Yeah, no. and they're a good team, except at the quarterback position. So, you know, I'm 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 excited for some possibility. But hope here is uh that's what they did. They bought you some hope. They they they're paying <laughs> well, a the swapping of picks. The swapping of picks between thirteen and fifteen is almost zero. 
Yeah. Um, they're giving up a second rounder who could become a first rounder. Uh, they're getting a fifth rounder, and I think they're giving up a second, second rounder. Round. I don't know. That that didn't seem to me – I mean, uh, we could look at the Massey chart. Yeah, I mean, if, if that second rounder becomes a first rounder. Like, if if if, if Rodgers plays the entire season and is kind of mediocre – Like, basically, if Rodgers plays, has a season like he had last year in Green Bay – a first rounder is going to seem like a probably a pretty steep price to pay for that, mm-hmm. but I think I think they bought I hope. Still, I, I, I'm, they bought hope. If I'm a Jets fan, fan I'm happy they pull the trigger. It's good for entertainment value for sure. Oh um, yeah, no, I mean it's yeah, it is. Exciting. I'm not saying it's a prudent choice, but you know sometimes a franchise just needs to sell a little hope, and they bought a little hope. Um, all right, guys, Major League Baseball. We've held off to the very end. What's the very top line? What's most interesting to you in baseball right now? I think that we still the Rays. They're for the four. They've started the season fourteen and zero at home. Yep. Um. They're twenty and three now to start the year. They have a ninety three run differential, so they're winning by four over four runs a game. Um. Their twenty two game home run streak did come to an end, but otherwise, those guys. I mean, I forget even like a year ago where this is even better than the Yankees started a year ago, right? Oh yes. Well, yes. this is ridiculous. Twenty and three is ridiculous. Yeah. It's, I, it's just unbelievable. And I guess just to illustrate the extremes, the Oakland Athletics have been almost, you know, as almost as extreme on the negative side. They're five and eighteen. They have a minus one hundred and two run differential, so they're giving up. They're losing by four and a half runs a game, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which will set a modern record if they keep at it. Of course, both these teams we, you know, Gonna get regress. inevitably regress. At this know, point, but, though, do we have to? I mean. Would our best guess for the Rays be getting close, Adi, to a hundred wins? I mean, they're you know they're twenty and three, so they've got. Let's call, it, let's call it. They would have been under expectation of their preseason rankings. They would have been, let's say, even fourteen and nine. They've got six extra wins. Those are in the bank. You can't take those away. Yeah. They've got six extra wins. If they just play at the win percentage that they're playing at, even the prior, there's no updating. Then they're at ninety four, ninety five wins. In baseball, since they play so many games, if their win percentage probability is just 3% higher than it was to start the season, instead of 55%, it was 58%, they're at 100 wins. So easily. I mean, I was, we were, I mean, there are two things that we got now that we didn't have a week ago. One is they lost, they went 13 0 and then lost, and then they lost a bunch of games. They lost three. Now they're on a streak again. So they won seven out of the last uh, 10, and I think a whole bunch in a row. They beat the Astros last night. Is that what happened? Astros yep. are, are yep. um, it, They just look like they're more for real. This has to do with our updating our, 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 our no, our yeah, it's standing. true. A week, a week or two ago when we were first talking about them, they'd, Play mostly just bad teams. Now they're plowing through the Astros. They're playing good teams. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, you asked me what I caught my eye on. I went to a game last week. So I went to see the Yankees play the Angels. And uh, the Otani and Trout didn't do, I mean, they didn't look particularly unusual. I was upset by that. I'd love to see them do great stuff. But they, they, you know, that's the thing about baseball. Even the greatest are one in three times they succeed and two out of three they don't. So you Mm -hmm. watch one game and, you know, anything can happen. Was that the game that Garrett Cole is pitching? Uh, no, this was not a Garrett. He did not pitch. Uh, not not many hitters have done anything against that guy. This no, year, the Yankees had, uh, I think it was Cortez on the mound. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's of course, you know, pretty fun to watch and good pitcher, but what disappointed me, well, first of all, the Yankees have no one after the top of the lineup right now because of injuries, they got, it's just pathetic. Really bad. And, uh, they have a shortstop play in center field and he made a, what looked like a great play, but I was actually watching him at the, at the ball, at the start of the play. And he went, he ran the wrong direction and then turned around and made this diving, (laughs) 
spectacular looking catch and all I could think of is Jeter esque. Oh, Jeter esque, right? So, uh, but the thing that disturbed me was um, there's an actual Moneyball Academy problem that I do with the students, which asks, should you run to maximize win probability when it's when it's uh, one runner on, nobody out, in the bottom of the ninth, and the game is tied? And the Yankees had just this opportunity with Volpe on first. And the, he's, the big base, he's the big base runner, right? He's the he's base the runner. Base. Mathematically, you need to just have a success probability of greater than 57% in order to make it worthwhile in terms of win probability maximization. Volpe's probably 80%. Yeah. Guess what they did? They didn't Bunt. run him. Bunt. <laughs> Pop up. <laughs> it was pathetic. I can't even tell you. And, they, and by the way, they did the same thing in the bottom of the eighth. Twice they had the same situation. T- score tied, runner on first, nobody out, and they they bunted both times and both but both times for outs. Crazy, like what is going on up there? Basically, practice your bunting, bunting, man. Eighty percent bunting. Uh, if you're gonna bunt a lot, practice it. Yeah, I mean, a good baseball base dealer should be around seventy-five. Eighty would be a high end. That's one of the new rules. So yeah, no, like, eighty's like would be like famous, right? Um, trying to think, it's pretty high. Chase Utley, I think, had the highest one of all time, and it was. Oh, he's probably over like, ninety, but he didn't run incredibly often, right? So, okay. Uh, anyway, yeah, another thing kind of notable historically that's happening is uh, Jacob Degrom and and just uh, sorry, and Clayton Kershaw now both have career whips below one. They uh, both, yeah, they're number two and number three all time in uh, career whip. Number one is. Remind some of our listeners what whip is. Walks and hits per inning pitch. It's basically, yeah, the number of men you put on base, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And they are, that's historically low. Just to kind of give you an idea, Marion Rivera is at like number five on the list all time. Um, and Pedro Martinez is like number 10. So, I mean, it's just amazing that we get to watch these two guys. Kershaw is obviously in the hall, going to go to the Hall of Fame. DeGrom, perhaps as well, if he can. Stops being injured. All right, fellas. Well, it's a fun time of year. One, I would say one of the best weeks of the year between the hockey playoffs, the basketball playoffs, and the NFL draft. Next week, we have the Kentucky Derby. It's a pretty sweet time of year for sports. You guys enjoy that. For the whole team here, Adi, Eric, Shane, for Matty D, the boss man, Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.